0: Hello, this is the Our Rivers podcast hosted by the Forever Our Rivers Foundation. We feature the people making a difference for healthy rivers all across the West. Look for our logo to support the businesses that fund healthy rivers. For more information about our work, visit foreverourrivers.org.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Seoul Paddleboards. Seoul makes high-quality, inflatable paddleboards built to last season after season. Seoul is passionate about improving access to clean, healthy waterways. That's why they build a wide range of boards, including adaptive models, and donate a portion of their profits to forever our rivers. Seoul builds innovative paddle boards to foster your spirit of adventure. This is Clark Tate. I manage the foundation's nonprofit partners, and I'm hosting today's episode. We're about to sit down with Colin Ewing. He manages the McGinnis Canyons and Dominguez Escalante National Conservation Areas for the Bureau of Land Management. These public lands are not that well-known outside of western Colorado, but trust us, they're stunning. Both feature dramatic desert landscapes with towering canyons and two beautiful and popular sections of river, the Ruby Horse Thief section of the Colorado and the Lower Gunnison River. These stretches are friendly to paddlers of all skill levels when the water levels are low, with gorgeous desert campsites and world-class views. And because of that, they've gotten very popular. We talk with Colin about how the Bureau is working to preserve the wilderness experience for visitors and protect habitat, even as the crowds swell. Hi, Colin. How's your morning going so far?
0: Going great. How are you doing, Clark?
1: I'm doing well. So you have a really cool job. You manage two stunning national conservation areas. Can you tell us in about three sentences how you got that job, what you studied, and how you built up the qualifications for it?
0: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We have a lot of folks that are interested in careers in public lands. So yeah, happy to answer that. I've been doing this job for eight years now, and prior to that, I was a planner for the BLM, working on the resource management plan for the Grand Junction Field Office. But before that, I was a biologist with Fish and Wildlife Service, and I started my career with the U.S. Forest Service as a rangeland management specialist. So I studied rangeland ecology at Colorado State University and um, just have a bachelor's of science in rangeland ecology and have been kind of making my way around these federal land management agencies for a while
1: very cool are you just sort of deliriously happy when you go to work every morning
0: well I wouldn't say that all the time um, I spend a lot of time in an office um, a lot of time on zoom meetings these days uh, but I get to be involved in making important decisions for public lands that that people really care about so working with the community working with an amazing staff of resource specialists yeah it's really a dream job uh, in a lot of ways but It has its uh, downside, too.
1: Right. It wouldn't be work otherwise. That's right. To back up a little bit, what exactly is a national conservation area or an NCA?
0: Yeah, so everyone kind of knows about National Park Service, national monuments, national parks. But the Bureau of Land Management also manages national monuments and these special congressionally designated areas called national conservation areas. And it's part of a larger system called the National Conservation Lands. So of the 245 million acres that BLM manages, there are 33 million that have some special form of protection and are part of the National Conservation Lands. So those include the monuments and NCAs and National Scenic and Historic Trails, wild and scenic rivers, uh, wilderness areas, wilderness study areas. So it's a pretty amazing network of national conservation lands within the Bureau of Land Management's portfolio.
1: Okay, cool. So the two NCAs, National Conservation Areas, that we're talking about today, McGinnis Canyons and Dominguez Escalante, they both have some wilderness in them.
0: Yeah, that's right. McGinnis Canyons is 123,000 acres of protected public lands. Uh, near Grand Junction and Fruta, Colorado. And it has a, uh, the heart of it is a wilderness area, the Black Ridge Canyons Wilderness Area, which is 76,000 acre wilderness area. Uh, Similarly, Dominguez Escalante is 210,000 acres between Grand Junction and Delta, Colorado. And it has at the heart of it, the Dominguez Canyon Wilderness Area, which is 66,000 acres of wilderness.
1: And so the wilderness is pretty strictly managed. You can't do a lot in there. But then the other areas that aren't designated wilderness are what you would call multi-use. So can you tell us a little bit about what multi-use means?
0: Well, sure. And I guess I would argue that we have multiple use in all of our landscapes. It's just you don't have every use going on on every acre. So within the national conservation areas, there's Lots of different forms of recreation that people really enjoy, you know, great opportunities for hiking, equestrian use, uh, motorcycle and ATV riding. Uh, we've got world-class mountain biking at Coca Coca-Pelle Loop. A lot of folks know about that. You know, these are, so these are protected public lands that are closed to mining and drilling, um, and they're closed to any of the land disposal laws, so they'll remain public lands, but they're still open to some of the traditional uses like hunting and fishing and livestock grazing. Uh, Even within the wilderness area, we have livestock grazing and motorized recreation in a lot of areas as well. So, yeah, I would say there's still certainly multiple use areas.
1: That is a lot to juggle. That is impressive. And both of them have a pretty amazing, pretty mellow and very family friendly stretch of river, correct?
0: Yeah, so both of these national conservation areas are on kind of the tip of the Colorado Plateau region. So if you picture those red rock canyons of Moab and Zion, it's similar to that. And, uh, you know, southwest Colorado, a lot of folks don't know, have these amazing red rock canyons. And, and that's why people love this area so much. So, yeah, we've got rivers flowing through both of these national conservation areas. Um, Ruby Horse Thief stretch of the Colorado River flows through McInnis Canyon. It's 25 miles of river with 34 designated campsites and it's it's really really popular for especially for kind of beginner boaters or folks that are just looking for a two or three night getaway it's a really great stretch of river. Similarly in Dominguez Escalante we have the lower Gunnison River uh, flowing through the NCA It's about 30 miles of the Gunnison River and again yeah flat water you know fairly easy to navigate. Um, there are a couple places that you have to have to look out but you know class one two rapids, or lack thereof I guess.
1: Right, like a little bit of moving water, kind of dodge the rocks.
0: And we've seen some really low flows, especially, you know, as you get to late summer and fall, which makes it a little trickier in some places to, you know, you you can certainly get stuck on some rocks or on a gravel bar, but yeah, generally you're not taking a lot of risk. Of course, people need to watch out I mean in the big spring runoff, you know, a couple of years ago the Colorado River stayed above 30,000 cfs for for over a month. And um, there are certainly things that could get you then, even though there's not big rapids, you know, you have a big cottonwood tree floating down the river and mm-hmm. the roots are sticking out of the water. I mean, if that catches your boat, you're in trouble. And, and if you go through the Black Rock stretch on the Colorado River and Ruby Horse Thief, it's really deep and those rocks have big, you know, potholes in them that cause kind of crazy hydraulics. It's really neat, but at high water, it can be dangerous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like wild eddy lines where you have conflicting currents that can catch your boat and flip you around or flip you over kind of shockingly easily.
0: <laughs> yeah. you're
1: just in the water.
0: Especially so, in like a canoe or a ducky, you know, an inflatable yeah. kayak, you know, a small craft like that. It can, it can grab a tube and pull it under pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So always wear your life jacket. And then how would people find out about the state of the river? Where should they go to make sure yeah. that it's at a safe level for their skills?
0: Sure. So the U.S. Geological Survey does a great job of maintaining river flow levels, um, and you can find that on our website. We have a link to their gauging stations to show what the flow level is. At the Utah state line, you know, most of the time we're down below 5,000 cubic feet per second, and that's pretty, pretty easy uh, to navigate. You know, it gets down to 2,000, and it's getting really low, but it's still fine um, for rafts and kayaks and canoes. When you get above 10,000, that's when, you know, some of those eddy lines start to show up and and you do have to watch out a little bit.
1: Definitely. And we'll include uh, that website in the show notes. And just to let people know, when you think of a cubic foot of water, picture a basketball. So if you picture a cross section of the river, and if it's 10,000 cubic feet per second, just stack up 10,000 basketballs. That's the volume of water that's like shooting down the river. It's kind of, it's an intense amount. Of basketballs slash water.
0: Yeah. You know, when we get spring runoff, we can get up to 50,000 CFS around here, and that's even more basketballs.
1: Yeah, an obscene amount of basketballs. So these NCAs are sort of tucked away in western Colorado, but they've still seen a really steady increase in use. Then that is really skyrocketed during the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about what that's been like from your perspective of managing these lands and making sure that one person's use doesn't impact somebody else's use. And we're all kind of sharing the lands.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, last year we saw a huge increase, like you said, and and it was tough because our staff is trying to navigate this new COVID world and we're trying to make sure our staff stays safe. So, you know, things like cleaning bathrooms that we do all the time are a whole new thing that we have to try to figure out. How do we do this safely? We've got a contractor doing that for us right now, which is great. But yeah, we also just seen a, a huge increase in the number of people out on public lands, um, which is great. You know, people really want to get out and enjoy their public lands. And I think a lot of folks who maybe always wanted to do more camping and biking and ATV riding and boating. But, you know, were really busy with other things going on in their lives. They finally got an opportunity to get out this last year, which is great. You know, that's that's what they're here for. And um, there are amazing opportunities for people. These lands belong to all Americans. But, yeah, we saw some issues come with that, too not everybody understood how to use the land responsibly so we're really working to try to educate folks we have a great friends group Colorado Canyons Association that is a, a community stewardship organization in western Colorado they've been helping us you know tabling at trailheads and talking to folks about leave no trace ethics um, doing public lands cleanups they also get lots and lots of kids outside on these rivers and on the public lands to learn about multiple use and and the resources of the ncas every year so uh, we've got some great community partners that help us with this, but yeah, we we've seen a huge increase and it's definitely come with some, some issues.
1: What are the biggest issues that you've seen?
0: Well, you know, folks not staying on the designated trails, um, when you're creating your own roads and trails, you're damaging, uh, vegetation, you know, forage for wildlife, often damaging archeology, span you know, historic and prehistoric sites, um, so we've we've seen a lot of that. Uh, folks creating their own campsites has the same impacts. People need to be trying to camp in the designated campsites or camping where other folks have camped. And when you're creating a new campsite, you're you're damaging resources. And when if everybody did that every weekend, pretty soon there's no vegetation left on the landscape. So you know human waste impacts when folks are camping, and uh, you're not near a restroom. We've seen a lot of human waste and toilet paper out in the landscape, which makes for a unpleasant experience for the next the next person who comes along. Same thing with fire ash and creating new fire rings. Often you'll see fire rings get full of ash and then somebody makes a new one right next to it. Pretty soon that campsite's really not usable anymore. So we've, we've seen a lot of those kinds of problems going on.
1: This overcrowding issue has been a problem for a while. Can you tell us about management strategies that have helped in the past?
0: Yeah, on Ruby Horse Thief on the Colorado River, we instituted a permit system in 2012. The, the river had just gotten so popular, and we were getting a lot of complaints from users about you know, all those things I just mentioned, the fire ash, the human waste, the impacts from other users, um, people fighting over the popular campsites, especially on the popular weekends. Um, so we put a permit system in place where you have to reserve a campsite, get a permit, and then uh, you know that campsite's going to be there for you on the night that you get there. And uh, it, it's really improved the experience for folks. We've seen a huge increase actually in the number of people. And we're able to sustain that number of people camping um, because it's spread out now more over the week and over the months.
1: So you've seen such a good response coming from that permitting system. And now you're working to put a similar system in place on the Gunnison River in the Dominguez Escalante. National Conservation Area. Is that correct? And how are you going about doing that?
0: Yeah, that's right. We're really in the early stages of that process. You know, we're not quite sure what that system will look like. And we're looking for feedback from the public and ideas from the public, um, from boaters on what do you think we should be doing there? You know, it's, it's a little bit of a different experience than the Colorado River is. There aren't as many camping opportunities. Some of the boat ramp access isn't quite as easy. And yeah, we're looking for what's the best way. You know, we're seeing some of the same issues, the most popular campsites. You know, everybody would like to be camping at the mouth of Big Dominguez Canyon because there's great hikes up into the Dominguez Canyon Wilderness Area from there. The scenery is beautiful. There's bighorn sheep you often see there.
1: There's some fun archaeological sites up there as well, aren't there?
0: That's right. There's great rock art to look at uh, in the wilderness area. There's a beautiful waterfall. Um, You can go play in the water. And yeah, people really, really love it there. So. So, yeah, you know, everybody kind of wants to be at the mouth of Big Dominguez Canyon on Memorial Day weekend. And that is a great place to be on Memorial Day weekend, except for right now, everybody else is there, too. And um, I think that most folks would be happy to go camp there um, on some weekend in June or maybe even a weekday in July if they knew that they had a campsite reserved and they weren't going to have to fight with others over that campsite or, you know hear the loud music of several other groups that are also wanting to camp in the same place.
1: Right. And so the permitting system will help mitigate those pressures and it will help you give people the information that they need to make sure that they're practicing proper leave no trace principles. If you could tell people like three things to avoid having those impacts that we were just talking about, making new campsites, leaving toilet paper underneath every tree, what are the, the highlights that you really want people to take away about Leave No Trace in these incredibly delicate desert ecosystems? Like they look hard to trample on, but they're really not.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and anybody can go online and look up the Leave No Trace principles. But I think for the most important things um, that come to my mind, you know, know before you go, um, looking at what are the rules and regulations and what's going on in, those pla- in, in the place that you're planning to go this weekend. Um, You know, some places are wide open and there are no restrictions on where you can camp. And that's a great experience. And other places have gotten popular enough that you do have to, you know, make a reservation. Colorado Canyons Association has some great videos that they produced on their website about know before you go for the ruby horse thief stretch that talk about river etiquette and what are the rules of the river. You know, some other ones, of course, staying on designated routes. We can't see a proliferation of new trails every weekend when we go out. We shouldn't be seeing more and more roads and trails cropping up because that damages a lot of sensitive resources. Um, And then using designated campsites and using established fire rings. Another thing that's important is to have a plan for your human waste when you go camping, whether that's bringing a portable toilet bringing wag bags that are available at sporting goods stores, or camping near a provided vault toilet on public land.
1: There's a lot of conventional wisdom that you can dig a cat hole. So that's just digging a hole and covering the hole with dirt again. And when enough people are doing that, it's really detrimental to the landscape and the desert stays dry. And because of that dryness, the human waste doesn't process like it might in a more forested area where that practice might Work so these are actually practices where you take your human waste out with you. a wag bag is just a bag that you poo in it's not nearly as traumatic as it sounds
0: yeah exactly and if you think about you know how many people have used that campsite before you if they all dug a hole or even worse didn't dig a hole and, and left that stuff around pretty soon that campsite's not a great place to go so yeah if, if folks can pack it out with them that really helps protect the recreation experience and the resources.
1: Another of our favorite Leave No Trace principles is dispose of waste properly. No leaving all those plastic wrappers behind. Paddlers are often the first to experience river hazards like trash, plastic pileups, and poor water quality. That's why Soul Paddle Boards gives back to rivers through our grants program, so rivers can stay healthy and accessible to you. Colin, you're also using your permitting process and your web resources to give people information about how to recreate responsibly during COVID. Can you give us a little information about what those suggestions look like?
0: Sure. Yeah, I think we took a lot of pride in being able to keep the Ruby Horse Thief permit system open last year during the peak of COVID when a lot of other things were shut down. You know, BLM Managed Public Lands were a place for people to go for for their mental health and, and their physical health and well-being. And, and so we, we take a lot of pride in that. Our staff uh, really felt strongly that we needed to be providing that opportunity for folks. The, the main resource that we, we provide is we direct people to the county health department website. Mesa County has a great health department um, and their website is up to date with really good information about how to stay safe. Um, so we're following county guidelines. You know, at one point we had reduced the group size on Ruby Horse Thief to 10, and we were only allowing groups of 10. Um, we're back to our normal group size of 25 now. But, yeah, of course, people should be practicing social distancing, you know, making sure that they're, they're not traveling with um, groups of lots of people from other households. And, you know, there, there are other things I think you can do on a river trip to, to try to stay safe.
1: I hear you're going on a Grand Canyon trip this summer. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of COVID preparations you're making for that adventure?
0: Yeah, of course, we're super excited about the trip. I've never done the Grand Canyon, so this is going to be amazing. But we're even still considering deferring the trip. You know, the Park Service is giving an opportunity to defer to two years from now if we oh, choose wow. to because of COVID. And, and we might still do that if things aren't looking better. You know, people are getting vaccinated now. So things are starting to look look a little better, but that's still an option. But if we go, which I, I really hope we can, you know, we're going to take a lot of precautions, like everybody should be avoiding close contact with people for 10 days prior to the trip so that they don't end up getting infected and bringing that on the trip. Everybody's supposed to get tested before the trip. So we have some special food service guidelines that you normally don't have on a river trip, like the kitchen crew will wear masks while they're cooking and serving food, and the kitchen crew will serve the food instead of like a buffet style. We'll have extra wiping down of the common touched areas with sterilized wipes. Um, you know, things like that. We're considering smaller group size, and maybe if people drop out, we don't bring more people into the trip because, you know, I know everybody wants to go on the Grand Canyon, but maybe it's better to not have as many people from as many different households. So those are the kinds of things we're thinking about for our trip.
1: And that's, you know, a high consequence, because for those who don't know, once you're in the Grand Canyon, like how many days is your trip scheduled for? Yeah,
0: it's 16 days. So yeah, yeah. If, you know, if somebody gets sick, or if COVID starts going around the, the group, you know, if somebody gets really sick, you got to get a helicopter ride out of there. And so you know, it may not be quite as high consequence on a two or three day Ruby Horse Thieves trip. But I think a lot of the same things apply.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can get out faster, but you still don't want to be struck down on the river or, you know, give it this really scary disease to your friends and family. Exactly. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I also hear that, you know, our executive director, Joe Newhoff. Can you tell us how you met Joe?
0: Yeah, Joe used to be actually the executive director of Colorado Canyons Association here in Grand Junction. Um, So he was the director of the Friends Group that is supportive of the three national conservation areas. So uh, I think I mentioned CCA before. They're the Friends Group for the three national conservation areas here in Western Colorado McInnes Canyons, Dominguez Escalante. And the third one that I'm not the manager for is Gunnison Gorge, which also has some amazing whitewater and and, uh, world class trout fishing. So, yeah, Joe uh, did an amazing job kind of starting up that organization, the friends group for the three NCAAs. Um, they get lots and lots of kids outside every year to learn about the resources in the NCAs. They get adults out to learn about things, and they've done a lot of uh, stewardship work like river cleanups and even some river restoration projects.
1: In case it sounds like we're shamelessly plugging Colorado Canyons Association here, we kind of are. Or rather, we're totally fine with Colin doing it for us, because CCA is one of our nonprofit partners. Here's how it works. Businesses like Soul Paddleboards give us a portion of their profits. We bundle that with contributions from other businesses. Then groups in our nonprofit network, like CCA, can apply for those grants to continue working for Rivers and the communities that benefit from them. That, and as Colin mentions, our executive director helped build it. So yeah, we like cheering them on.
0: So uh, that's how I got to know Joe. He's a great guy. Um, I'm really happy for him with his new role. You know, he's got a he's got a great legacy here in Grand Junction for all the work he's done.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. We're really happy to have him on board with Forever Rivers. So the permit systems that you guys have put in place um, regulate the number of people who can be in the canyon, which helps preserve its wild feel for visitors and helps preserve the landscape. Um, and it also helps you communicate current regulations with users. And you also are collecting permit fees. So what do those permit fees go to? What are they supporting?
0: Yeah, so the permit fees really just help BLM manage that recreation opportunity and that ecosystem, you know, where, where there's a little bit of extra use and a little bit of extra management need. So we're able to hire river rangers to do patrols and make sure that folks are doing those important things like bringing their fire pan and their groover Um, So they are protecting the opportunity for for future users. Um, But we're also able to use some of those fees to improve the boat ramps, clean the restrooms at boat launches. Yeah. So another good use of the permit fees is we put money in an agreement with the Western Colorado Conservation Corps to do work on the river, um, removing tamarisk from the riparian corridor and restoring good, healthy cottonwood stands. You know, cottonwood stands are not adapted to fire and We humans have introduced this species called tamarisk and other invasive species like cheatgrass that um, really play a negative role in the riparian ecosystem along the rivers. So, you know, tamarisk grows under the cottonwood trees and becomes a ladder fuel. So if there's a fire, um, often a human caused fire, an escaped campfire, you know, will run through the cheatgrass, get up in the ladder fuels of the tamarisk and then kill the cottonwood trees. And anybody who's been on the river in the summer knows the cottonwood trees are, you know, that shade is like gold. And that's just for us. You know, that's really important to the riparian ecosystem, all the birds and other wildlife that use that river corridor really rely on healthy cottonwood stands. So that's been a really great use of the permit fees is to get those youth corps crews out to help remove the tamarisk and plant native species to get those cottonwood stands uh, healthy again.
1: And you've been making real progress on Ruby Horse Thief, right? So you, you can actually see the difference that work has made on that stretch of river.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of these other uh, BLM offices and partnerships with groups like the uh, Dolores River Restoration Partnership and Rivers Edge West are, are doing a lot of treatments on other rivers now, too. But I think the Colorado River, and Ruby Horse Thief, is kind of where a lot of this started, We've got a river ranger named Troy Schnurr who's been here for a long time. And it's kind of been his life's goal to see that riparian system along Ruby Horse Thief flourish. And so he's been working on it for a lot of years. And, yeah, we've really been able to accelerate it in the last several years. There's several of these partner organizations that are really excited about helping us. And then we've got that permit fee to be able to put toward these youth corps crews uh, to get a lot of work done.
1: Do you get a lot of feedback from folks who've run the river over the years? Like, hey, we've really seen this change. This is cool.
0: Yeah, we do. You know, I mean, a lot of times what we're doing is improving the campsites along with improving the ecosystem because people love to camp under cottonwoods. So they definitely notice and especially people who who really know that that ecosystem, you know, not everybody knows what a tamarisk tree looks like or what's a native and non-native species. But people who do know, uh, they definitely call me and say, wow, that place is looking really good.
1: Colin, thank you so much for your time today and for helping us understand more about national conservation areas and how we can enjoy them while protecting them and ourselves this summer. This has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, we hope to see you out on the river. Between Colin's suggestions and the resources we provide in our show notes, we hope you feel prepared to responsibly explore our public lands and the rivers that run through them this summer. We hope to see you out there.